Have you heard other investors discussing their charitable remainder trusts? Perhaps you're one of those investors, or maybe you're sitting on the sidelines wondering what that really is. John Smallwood, president of Smallwood Wealth Management and author of It's Your Wealth, Keep It, is gonna educate you on charitable remainder trusts, how you need to get started, what the best plan of action is, and how you're gonna to have to manage your wealth to be sure that your children and family will get the most out of what you leave behind. Let's just get right down to business. The Joe Roberts Show. This, this is The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. Hello, John. Welcome to the show. Let's get rolling by giving us a brief background about how you got started in wealth management. Okay, Joe. Thank you for having me. So you go to college and you think you want to be an accountant and then you get into the accounting classes and you realize, oh my God, I don't want to be an accountant. Uh, but you get deep into the accounting classes and you show up at an economics and a finance class. You're like, oh, that's really interesting. And change my major quickly. And my father had been in the financial services industry forever. So kitchen talk, you know, dinner talk was all about finances. It was all about savings and markets and things like that. And as a kid, I thought, never, I wanted to be in the boating industry. I, I love boats, right? Well, 1987, 88, you have the excise tax put on um, the boating market, a 15% excise tax on luxury items, and it destroyed the market, right? I mean, literally... Uh, so the big New Jersey manufacturers went from a thousand employees down to five. I mean, it just destroyed the entire thing. Coming into the early nineties, I thought, Hey, I can, you know, I'll come into the financial services industry and it'll be great. And, you know, for the, I joined the family business and applied all the information that I learned in college and then got a real, real education and learning how this thing really works. <laughs> no, I agree. I mean, that's, uh, as, I guess as Trump put it on his post, right? You learn by hands-on, right? That's how you get the real world is you go out and do it. I think, you know, I'm a, I have four kids. My idea of learning is go out and fail. If you fail, what you learn in the process of failure is so much better than me telling you what to do because you're never going to be able to do it. My father early on when I joined him in the business, he's like, I can't give you any clients. Go out and get a client. He taught me how to get clients. He taught me how to fish. And if I didn't really understand how to fish, you know, he's no longer, I mean, he's here, but he's no longer part of the actual operations here. You know, you're not resilient. And the key in life is getting up, failing, fixing it, repeating it. Sometimes you got to repeat it 15 to 20 times. And then you go, Oh my God, am I going to get this? Am I finally going to get this? Right. And I think that's the lessons in wealth. It's like this slippery slope is we get caught up in a lot of things and things look great. And then the risk was there the entire time. And all of a sudden the floor falls out and you're like, Oh my God, you know, how did that happen? And it's those, it's those lessons that we learn and how we apply them going forward. I think are super important to wealth and creating wealth and keeping it. I, my new book, you know, it's your wealth. Keep it is all about keeping it <laughs> do you think learning from those lessons. Do you think people just get too caught up in the moment usually and, and are not paying attention to the underlying risks in their portfolio? Yeah, there's sort of like a, and I see this often. I mean, I've been doing this for 30 years and I see, I've seen people go from zero to millions and back to zero. Right. And there's this bravado that happens that I'm invincible. 
uh, I'm impenetrable. Nothing can, I am, you know, Teflon, nothing can, you know, I, I've orchestrated this. And a lot of it is not, a lot of it is just happens to be right time, right place, uh, being prepared, having the right skills, but you have to maintain that, that structure and that balance to say, I can't violate my principles. Cause when you start violating your principles of, of wealth, you take on too much risk. You take on too much debt. You you go to class C tenants thinking you're going to get a higher income. You know whatever that is, you need to make sure that you really understand where the risks are. And risk is always accompanied with liquidity. And as you become more and more successful, is what is your level of liquidity, and where is that liquidity, and how do I access it? You know the banks will lend you a ton of money when you don't need it. When you need it, ah, Joe, I don't think we're going to give that to you. You're not going to give you that loan. You know, you're over leveraged at this point. Um, you know, they're going to give somebody with a low credit score a higher interest rate. Well, there's a higher chance of default. Well, you're just giving them a higher chance of default because it's a higher interest rate. You know, um, so to answer that, you know, that that question is it's you have to keep it in balance. You have to keep it in check. You know, just because you're successful here doesn't mean you're going to be successful. I see people take all their money out of their business. They sell it for a ton of money and they go invest it in this other business. That sounds great. They know nothing about, and it's all gone. Um, I've had companies get sold, the buyers buy it. And three years later, the company's out of business because they, they didn't, they didn't realize what they were buying. And they try to fix it the way they want to fix it. Well, the reason why it worked is because it was working the way the guy was running it. Um, you know, you change too many things, you know, like when a restaurant changes hands, Oh, we're going to tweak this and tweak that. Well, people were coming to the restaurant because they loved it. You know, big twigs, big twists don't make sense. Although I just had a local restaurant totally rebadge themselves and it was a high, high end restaurant. And he brought it to a high, high, a double high and redid the menu and redid the interior. And you can't get a, you can't get a table, you know, it's months to get a table. So it's very successful. So, so do you think, so a lot of the failures uh, around, I guess the clients that kind of take on more risk, do you think that's just a lack of planning? Is that a lack of writing it down? Or maybe you can answer by what are the things that work for when you're doing the planning for your clients? Well, first of all, you got to have a structure and a set of rules, right? So one of the things that we like to look at is I have like seven of these things, right? And the first thing is the strategy that I'm deploying, it has to reduce taxes today and in the future. It has to reduce risk and risk comes from a lot of different places. We all think about in, you know investment risk, but risk is, um, you know, there's risk in mortality. There's risk in morbidity. You know, I become disabled. You know, there's, you know, I get sued. I, I, you know, I have a long-term care event. Uh, my spouse leaves me. You know, these are all risks that are going to, you know, you know, how is it going to work under different scenarios? I want to reduce fees and costs. Fees and costs are disruptors of wealth. And, but they need to be present in most people's plans because most people can't do it themselves, but my strategy should reduce those over time. I want to increase savings rate. You know, how do you do that? By restructuring a plan properly, right? Because that's, you know, the savings rate is the fuel that's going to, you know, put gas in the tank to get you from you know, New Jersey to California. You know, I can't put, 
I can't run my plan without having this, right? So in that, I want to make sure that I have more benefits and more protection around the wealth so that when I hit retirement, I can actually increase my spending without fear of running out of money and then ultimately pass it to your family. I mean, you, you just mentioned to me that you have, you know, young kids and, you know, I have, I'd like to call them older kids at this point. They're still kids, you know, but they're 24, 22, 20 and 16. You know, I want to enjoy my wealth, but nothing will make me happier than giving them, you know, the tools and the, and, and the, and the power to succeed. Right. So those seven things should happen. And most people, when you really look at the financial strategies that they're deploying, they're increasing their taxes, they're increasing risk, they're increasing fees, they're decreasing their savings rate, they're actually gonna have less money in retirement, and they're gonna pass less money to their family. They don't have to do it that way, and that's what's happening. And, and every, it doesn't matter where you are, it's happening, right? And I, we can go through examples of it, but it's, it, it, you know, I can get from a million to 2 million and I can get there with no tax or I can get there with, you know, 200,000 of tax, which, which strategy is better? The one with less tax. But if I deferred all my taxes from, you know, a 20% bracket to a 40% bracket, maybe that wasn't either. That wasn't too smart either. You know, my biggest fear is, you know, Biden in the new tax law, he's talking about capital gain and anything above a million going to 39.6. Mm-hmm. And, and it, you, know, you know, you talk about a real estate investor, you talk about a stock investor, that's a significant deterrent to sell anything or in its value. I mean, imagine you, you've been depreciating, you know, your, your asset. I don't, they didn't talk about what, the, what the, the depreciation recapture would be, whether it would still be 28% or not. I doubt it. Um, and then you got this 39.6% capital gain rate, which is you know, right now it's 20 at the maximum side. I mean, that, that is the difference of millions of dollars in a lot of transactions. That's going to hurt the real estate market. It's going to hurt things. It's going to, you know, that's where you get into what's my exit strategy. How do I get out of these highly appreciated properties without paying taxes? And that, that's strategy, right? So I'm concerned about this. And they're proposing that, I believe over a million dollars a year, right? Is that what that proposal is? Yeah. So it's, Anybody with a million dollar and higher income, yeah, you're you know at, at four hundred thousand, you're at thirty nine point six. You've hit the top bracket. But if you have a gain of over a million dollars, that triggers thirty nine point six. The way I read it, um, so you sell a piece of property that has a gain of you know a million two, you're paying forty percent tax. You know thirty nine point six plus the state that you're in. Got it. Plus so some other Medicare taxes, etc. So when people, I guess, clients are coming to you now in 2020 and they're looking at what may come down the road, uh, you know, what are those tax strategies that you're implementing today and advising the clients? One of the first things that you have to take a look at is, you know, in the current Trump tax law, you have qualified business income, 199A, right? Are you optimizing 199A? Like what's your business you know, real estate or self-employed, are you getting enough income salary versus profit to get the benefit of the QBI deduction? And that QBI, if you don't know about it, if I own an S corporation and I pay myself, you know, let's say I pay myself a salary of a hundred thousand 
and I make 100,000 of profit, that 100,000 of profit is going to be able to get a 20% deduction depending on you know, certain laws, right? So I'm going to pay tax on 80 versus 100. That's powerful, extremely powerful, right? I've encountered a lot of people where their corporation, they're paying themselves seven, 800,000 a year in salary, subjecting it to, you know, um, Medicare tax, if I could stutter more, that, that would be great. But the, that, that tax is there, but then they're only showing a hundred or $200,000 worth of you know, profit. So now they've got the tides turned, right? So there's a concept in the tax law called reasonable compensation. Nobody knows what the heck it is because nobody's defined it. But like, you know, as a business owner, you know, if I pay myself 200 and have a six or $700,000 QBI deduction, that's really powerful. That's a 20% on the 700,000. That's, you know, 140,000 I'm not paying taxes on. Now, should I defer that into a qualified plan to pay future higher taxes? No, you know, I should put it somewhere where I can get future tax-free income. So, so the first thing is you gotta really look at what the heck does my current tax return look like? And my, you know, my business tax return flows over to my personal tax return. Did I do everything in the business to maximize depreciation? You know, if you're a real estate investor, you know, interest rates are at what? All-time lows? Maybe the lowest? Pretty much the last few weeks, right? Pretty much, right? So, and valuations in a lot of areas are up dramatically, except in the major cities like Orlando and Manhattan and you know Phoenix and California. But what a great time to refinance your properties and get that into that optimal debt to income ratio, right? You know, what is that for the individual investor? It depends on how much cash that they have. But if you could take some chips off the table and put some cash getting ready for the downturn and reduce your your cash flow on those expenses, you increase your cash flow, you, you're going to lose some tax benefits because you're going to minimize your interest deduction, but it's going to, you know, with real estate, depending on how it's structured, you have QBI, which is really valuable, right? So, so you look at this and say, in the business, whether it's real estate or my, you know, manufacturing company or whatever you're, you have, have I optimized the cash flows, the depreciation, the, the, you know, anything I can do in my cash flow is to put more money on my personal return. And then on the personal return, how do I optimize that? Because we, you know, if Trump is not elected, Biden is going to overturn that tax law as quickly as they possibly can. Right. So the SALT deduction comes back into play. Mortgage interest comes back into play for many, many people. If he doesn't, in the 2025 tax law, 2026, the law is all sunset, okay? So, you know, what are you doing on your plan in your strategy? Like even your, you know, people are accelerating their mortgages right now, they're refinancing, they're going, gee, I can get a 10 year mortgage for what I was paying on a 20, or I can do a 15 versus what is a 30. And if you look at that, we talk about five rules of the institutions, right? And the five rules are basically saying, if I'm a financial institution, my job is to make you feel comfortable about giving me money, 
Okay. All my marketing, everything that I am doing, I got a, you know, I've got a low interest rate, you know, on my 15 year mortgage or my 10 year mortgage. And then the second thing is once I'm comfortable, I want to get that money as quickly as I possibly can. So rather than doing a 30 year mortgage, that's let's say 3%, you could do the two and a half percent if you do a 10 year mortgage. So I'm the financial institution and I get money quicker. That's good for me, the financial institution, right? Because I can turn that money and lend it back out. When I give it to them, they want to hang on to it for as long as they possibly can. So all the strategies promote, you know, dollar cost averaging, dividends to reinvest, hang on to that money. The financial institution wants to hang on to the money for as long as possible. And then they don't want to dole it back out to you. You know, don't take it all out at one time, Joe, because you might run out of money. So leave it with us, the financial institution. We're, we're compounding our fees. We're compounding mm-hmm. your taxes. And then, oh, by the way, we are going to change the rules on you. We're a financial institution. We're going to change the interest rates. We're going to change our fees, you know, life insurance policies. We're going to raise the mortality rate. You start seeing all these crazy things. And what people don't understand is that, you know, think of where, where are we in the interest rate environment? I'm 52 years old. It's never been this low. All right. My father's 77 or something like that. Right. Never been that low. You know, do I want to pay off this debt quickly? I don't think you do, you know, depending on who you are. But like, if I had two strategies, a 30 versus a 15, and I took the difference of the payments, and I said, I'm going to take the difference of the payments and put it in a side account, mortgage cancellation fund. Right around year 14 to 16, without the tax benefits, I should have enough money to pay off that mortgage at like a 3% internal rate of return on that money compounding over that time frame, right? Where's the interest rate going to be 15 years from now? Well, I sure have no hope clue. it's going to be higher, but <laughs> who knows in this world anymore, right? <laughs> right. And I've been saying for 12 years that interest rates are going to rise, rise and I've been dead wrong. But let, let's just say 12 years from now, I've got $400,000 sitting in my mortgage cancellation fund and it's making 7% in the bank like it was 12 years ago. Do I want to pay off a 2.75% mortgage? Absolutely not. I want to be in control of my money. I want to put that money to work. I want to buy things, right? You know, if interest rates are seven, eight percent, housing values will fall. It should, right? Economics, it's going to be cost more to, to maintain. It's a housing. Well, I, if I have cash that I didn't prepay my mortgage, I can now put that money to work where everybody else has got to go refinance at seven percent. I mean, I saw this early, early on in my career. People would come in and they had these massive home equity lines after owning the house for 20 years. I'd be like, what's up with that? And it turns out it was because they had to put their kids through college. They didn't have, they didn't have money on the outside. All the money was sitting in there. So they were going back into debt now paying seven and a half, eight percent on these home equity lines back at the time. And for 30 years, interest rates have been falling. So they've been benefiting from that, but they didn't have enough liquidity on the outside to hit these other goals, right? And so when you're in your plan, you want to look at is what is every single way that I can reduce my taxes? Have I maximized it, right? And more importantly, when the tax law changes, Am I going to, you know, we don't know how it's going to change, but let's assume that it, it sunsets and Trump does get elected, 
right? So it sunsets in 2026. 20, is my plan set up to, to benefit from that tax law? And the answer to that question is I've got to maximize mortgage interest deduction in that time frame. Right. I have to look at, should I be putting money in 401k versus 401 Roth? You know, I believe we're in the lowest tax bracket, you know, one of the lowest tax brackets we've been as a country for a very, very long time. Deferring tax. I don't know. I don't know if it really makes sense, uh, especially with all the Fed stimulus that we've seen. Right. Somebody's got to pay for it. My only concern there, I, I, I totally agree in the fact that, uh, you know, getting involved in all Roth accounts is, you know, my opinion, the best. And that's what I personally do. But just the, uh, you know, the fact how they kind of got rid of the stretch IRA from the inheritance part, like you just don't know where, where, you know, one day they might just make a decision in some aspect to change the rules, right? Absolutely. Somebody, somebody had, and I don't have, I can't I think what the name of it is. Hang on a second. But there is a, there's a, there's a document that's circulating that, and it's, I've known this for 25 or 30 years, that the IRS technically has the right to confiscate the money in your qualified plans, all of it, regardless of what, whether it's Roth or that, right? Because, and they can do that through excise taxes. When Clinton was president, there was a 15% excise tax on all qualified plan distributions. So translation, if I was pulling more than 160,000 out of my qualified plan, I paid federal tax plus 15% excise tax. If I died with more than 750 in the plan, the family that's income in respect of a deceit and the family owed the regular income tax plus 15% excise tax. And back in the day, you didn't have a stretch IRA. This was before stretch, right? So you had to collapse the IRA within five years back then. Okay. So then comes the stretch, which says, Oh, mom dies. I get to roll it over into mom's name, deceased IRA for the benefit of me. And now take this little tiny RMD, you know, required minimum distribution out based on my life expectancy. I might've been smarter taking it out a few years ago when these tax brackets are low, because now I'm deferring it. Enter the secure act, which everybody's forgotten about because of COVID, right? Which you know came at the end of last year, which says no more stretch. Now you're going to take it down over a 10 year period. Now, if I inherit a million dollar IRA, I don't have to take it out every single year for the next 10 years. I can defer it to the 10th year. What's my tax going to be? And if I have a million, I got and I take a hundred out a year. That's going on top of my current tax it's pushing me into this higher bracket. If I'm, you know, in the Biden tax law, you know, about 400,000, boom, I've got a Medicare tax of 12% on top of the 39.6 that he's proposing. So you have to have this, you know, like, here's what I don't know. My grandmother gave me this crystal ball day one when I entered the business and I was having a conversation. I knocked it off my desk and it shattered into a million pieces, right? So I've been lost ever since, right? But what I know is like, you gotta have, you gotta have multiple strategies going on at the same time because Roth may be right. You know, like in a perfect world, I defer from a 50% bracket to, you know, a 10, that's a perfect world. Well, if I'm in a 10% bracket, I probably don't have enough wealth, right? <laughs> you know, and in this other side, what Biden's proposing is, not only the Medicare tax in the 39.6, but in the 401k market, getting rid of the deduction and replacing it with a tax credit 
at 26%. Well, if you're making above 400, the deduction was worth way more than the tax credit of so 26%. With all, with all these tax increases and Biden gets elected, I, I can't imagine that a lot more people will leave California and, and New Jersey and New York and these high state, you know, income state tax states, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, California, I think it's got a 10%. New Jersey has, you know, we're talking now there's a millionaire tax above it. You've got a higher tax. Uh, if you make more than a million, we're pushing eight and a half to nine before that. Um, people are fed up with paying taxes. You know, at least California has lower property taxes than New Jersey does, um, but not much. <laughs> you know, North Carolina's got better, right? But uh, I mean, New Jersey is leaving in droves. I, I think somebody told me there's 6,000 people a month heading south. They're going <laughs> to Delaware, North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida, Georgia. I mean, we have, my client base is slowly, you know, the geographic was, you know, heavy New Jersey is now Florida and up. You know, it's just, you know, not many people going west. You know, there's no gold out west anymore, right? So we're not going out west. But, you know, we're going to the tax havens. You want to get to the places where you don't pay taxes. You want to go to New Hampshire. Um, you want to live free. I just, you know, when, when you look at wealth, taxation, current taxation, and deferral of taxation is just, it decimates it. Right. So the tax law is your, you know, everybody's talking about Trump and his, you know, his audit. Right. And his seventy five million dollar refund. You know, if you lost a couple billion dollars in a transaction, the tax law allows you before Trump became president to continue to to carry forward those losses indefinitely you'll never pay tax again on anything. I mean, if you're real estate and you went through 07, 08, 09, you lost money. If you're a developer, you lost money, you'll never Everybody pay did. taxes. Everybody did yeah, that you'll never. You might never pay taxes again, all right? So if you're smart the way you were doing it, like, you know, realizing losses is an important part of this, you know? So you think about, and I think one of the things that you wanted to talk about that we talked about earlier was the concept of, okay, I own a piece of property, whether it be, you know, a piece of uh, real estate or a highly appreciated stock or something to, mm. you know, and getting rid of it. Right. So, we, in my book, we talk about chapter six has this thing called the beautiful balance, right? Which talks about, this, you know, having cash. Um, I'm a proponent of cash value life insurance so that you can utilize the cash values, but more importantly, the death benefit. And, and I want to use the death benefit creatively during my lifetime, right? So I start thinking about a future where, if the capital gain rate goes to 39.6 and I own a highly appreciated piece of property, I probably don't want to sell that. I want to do a 1031 exchange. Well, what if they take away the 1031 exchange or put massive restrictions on it? You know, that would single-handedly overnight destroy the real estate market. I don't think they're <laughs> going to do that. <laughs> right? 
right? But so, you know, but sometimes like right now, there's some pretty crappy deals out there that people are buying in their 1031 exchanges. Definitely and, over the last year, I've seen a lot of deals just trade for the fact that 1031 way overpriced per door. Uh, I, I couldn't believe it. You know, it seems like you, be, you may be leaving one good deal for a bad deal. Maybe a worse deal. Even yeah. these opportunity zones, like all the opportunity zones, the amount of money going into the opportunity zones is off the charts. Like valuations are double and triple what they were worth only five or six years ago. Okay. Right? So let's say that I bought a piece of property for a million dollars and it's, uh, you know, and it's worth $4 million. Right. Well, if I have to get out of that with a 50% tax, you know, you, you look at what's this $4 million piece of property producing in income. If I sell it, assuming no debt and I got to pay 50% tax, I'm only going to have income. So 4 million net after tax, 2 million rough, you know, rough math here, right? Not, not counting for depreciation, recapture, et cetera. You know, my, you know, just using this high end bracket, $2 million put in the bank at, you know, 4% is $80,000 a year. It's not that exciting. All right. So one of the things that I think through is if I have a, if I have a life insurance death benefit that's significant, that's going to be here upon my death, let's say I've got a $4 million death benefit that's permanent. That allows me to look at the tax law and say, what, what's this concept of a charitable remainder trust? Okay. So I say, I'm going to set up a charitable remainder trust and I'm going to gift the property and sell, you know, and the property will get sold inside of the CRT, the charitable remainder trust. So when I do that, there's no tax on the transaction. So the, the charity, the trust sells the property for the 4 million, the 4 million goes into an account that I have a lifetime income from. And I'm at the same 4%, I'm going to get $160,000 a year versus 80. And when I do that, that $4 million deduction, that gift, I get a tax deduction. I might get, you know, if I'm older, I'm going to get a higher one because it's what's left over goes to the charity. Most people are like, why? I don't want to give $4 million to a charity. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love the charities, but I don't want to do that. Right. So, you know, but what's left over is what goes to the charity, right? How, you know, how much more income can I get over a 10 year life? For 80 versus 160, right? But I'm, I'm missing that principle. Now, let's say that I get a two, because I'm 65 or 70, I get a $2 million deduction on that 4 million. How am I going to use the 2 million uh, of deduction? Cool. Yeah. So I look at the plan and say, hey, I might have 2 million in my qualified plan taxable. Let me convert it to a Roth. Let me sell another piece of property that has really crappy basis, meaning it's zero basis or negative basis because my accountant over depreciated it. Right. Um, and use that to offset that actual gain. So if you did that, if you think about it, $4 million piece of property, sell it, you have $2 million net, that's going to give you 80,000. And I now have a $2 million IRA at the same 4%, it's going to give me 80,000 taxable. 
So I'm living on, you know, 160 net after tax. That's not that exciting. I mean, it is, but it's not right. <laughs> so, so I do the charitable remainder trust, 4 million goes in, I'm getting 160. I convert my 401k IRA to, to a Roth and I'm now getting 80,000 tax free. That's 200 and simple math, $240,000 versus 160 taxable. That's a lot more exciting. Now, if you think about, let's say I have a life insurance policy, a whole life insurance policy, you know, one of those old ones that's making four or 5%, right? Plain, boring, terrible thing, but it has a $4 million death benefit. So the 4 million I know is gonna come in at some point in time, right? So think of it as a permission slip. Think of it as how can I spend the death benefit while I'm alive? Because I just want to frame a conversation for a second, right? Is if I'm worth $5 million, the goal of my estate plan is to get my kids $5, five million. million. Not $10 million, $5 million, right? So if I have a $5 million life insurance policy and I have a $5 million estate and I died yesterday, my kids are getting 10 million. That means I didn't have as much enjoyment from my money as I should. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so we look at this and now say, well, think about the death benefit in a different perspective. If I've got that $4 million policy that we were talking about and that $4 million property, right that's a permission slip to do the charitable remainder trust. My kids are still going to get the asset. And if my, if I live a long time, I got a lot more income than I would have if I had sold it and kept it. Right. I've got more cash flow to do different things with. I look at this and say, you know, as we head into an unknown inflation rate, right? Because I think inflation is here and I think it's mass. I mean, cars are through the roof, cheese is through the roof, milk's through the roof, right? Inflation is much higher than we believe it to be. So we're in it and the government's telling us, oh, it's very low, very, 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 very low, right? So, okay, great. So we look at this and we say, my goal is to spend all my money before I die. And I want to get it as tax efficient as I possibly can. So a charitable remainder trust is super tax efficient because the money, I don't have to worry about selling, I don't have to do anything, right? So the life insurance death benefit becomes the permission slip to spend it, to do the charitable trust. There's a concept called the reverse mortgage, right? I love houses. I think houses are fantastic, but if you really look at what they cost, they're, they're horrible, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right? And money, pay. right? Money freaking, but every time you turn around, it's like, what? I got to write a check for what? You know, I just bought a new house. We got to get, you know, a fence. I'm like, seriously? Fence costs that much money? (laughs) Yeah, it's a small piece of property. But but the idea is that, you know, eventually I'm at the point where we mentally convince ourselves that we don't, we're going to sell that big house and move to a smaller house. You just worked for 30 years to get the house paid for. Now you can finally enjoy it because you've built up and now you're going to sell it, right? Well, what if I, you know, I, that same life insurance policy, do the kids really want your house? No, they don't want your house. They have their own house. 
you know, unless it's a special piece of property, like on a, you know, on a lake yeah. or a river or something, but that's different. This is not, your, this is your primary residence. Most people don't want the primary residence. So I look at this and say, I got a million dollar policy. Why don't I do a reverse mortgage? Get, you know, I'm 70 years old. My house is worth 500,000. It's 25,000 tax free. How much do I need to take out of my IRA to get 25,000 tax free? A lot more. Yeah. All right. So, so this is not a conversation of, that's better than this, right? Real estate's better than equities. Equities are better than life insurance. Life insurance is bad. Annuities are bad. All this stuff is investments are bad. All, no, none of it's bad. It's how do you use it so that you put it in your plan officially to say, if I'm going into the higher tax bracket, what's my exit strategy? It may make sense to, to defer 100% of your money into qualified plans because you have an exit strategy because you commingled it, not commingled it, but you married it with real estate. Well, if I could do this charter man of trust, I can get all my money out of the plan tax-free. I know how to do that. And so what right? is, It's about strategy. Go ahead. And I heard uh, you're, you mentioned charitable remainder trust, and I've heard of charitable lead trust and kind of well, what are the differences or how do you advise like a client to choose one over the other? Well, it really comes down to payout, right? So you really want to understand each one has a different nuance. You're going to get a bigger tax deduction because there's less income. It depends on the individual and the person, right? And you, I am talking about a lead trust. I am talking about a remainder trust. And there, there's nuances within there that when you sit with your attorney and you sit with your cash flows and you sit with your advisors, you're going to make a decision as to how that charitable trust should be structured to maximize the income and also the tax benefits. It really depends upon who you are at that moment. Um, it, you know, they're all fall into the same category in my mind, right? I'm going to give a highly appreciated, you know, a highly appreciated piece of, of something to it and in turn for an income stream and how long is that income stream going to be? And how long, you know, the longer it is, the less deduction that I get. So, yeah, I mean, same thing, just different terminology. And it, it's the attorneys are going to unwind that the right way, too, if you have the right attorneys. Yeah. And, and so, so many people, I guess, yeah, I guess maybe when they first initially think or hear about donating to it's a charity, maybe, you know, everyone obviously has a certain side that they want to do benefit to charity. And then there's a certain side that they have to have profitability in order to survive. Right. And so typically how do, how do people wrap their head around quickly? Like, is this viable for me or does it even make sense financially? I think a charitable gift only makes sense if it's a small percentage of your assets. Um, I've seen people do charitable remainder trusts and then they take the tax savings and they buy the life insurance when they're 70 years old. Mathematically, they didn't win from that. They would have been better off doing something else. The advisor did extremely well. Okay. Um, you know, to me, you want to get it set up and you want to have all these things in your plan so that if you're sitting in a room and there's you know, two windows and a door, which way do you, and you're going to paint the floor, which way are you going to paint to the, towards the window or to the door? Well, how high is the window? 
you know, is it a third story <laughs> window? And then my only way out is through the window. That's not a good strategy, right? So I want to I figure out a way that I can paint to all three at the same time. So I can look at it and say, what's the best way for me to get out of here in the event that there's an emergency, right? So, you know, if we're in a 50% tax bracket and I got to sell the property, because a lot of properties go into what I call no cash flow, you know, negative cash flow. And you need to get out of it because it's just sucking you dry. Okay. Different strategies are going to make sense at that time frame. I mean, it's, and, you know, where is the property owned? Um, how you own the property, I think, is really, really important. Also, I see a lot of people holdovers from the 70s where real estate, highly appreciated real estate, is in C corporations, not S, you know, not LLCs, but C corporations, which means I sell it, the corporation pays a tax internally, and then the distribution, you pay a, another tax you're talking about a 60 to 70% tax between the two layers. So you really have to look at is how do I unwind these things before I make a decision? And to me, what we do is we do this concept called blueprinting. It's called the wealth curve blueprint, which is a, is a, it's a snapshot. Let me take everything that you own and put it into an organized manner and understand where you are and then take it and simulate it. If you change nothing, where are you going? Now apply financial pressure, apply a higher tax rate, apply no tenants, apply, you know, more sideways market, uh, kids going to a college that you didn't plan for, you know, what's the impact of that? <laughs> you know, um, the good news is the kids in Harvard, the bad news is you've got a, you know, state school uh, plan. Um, you know, there's, there's, you have to understand where you're going and then, you know, if you haven't done a lot of planning, a child remainder trust probably doesn't make any sense, right? If you've done a lot of planning as a potential exit strategy, then it makes a, tr a tremendous amount of sense. There's going to be a button or a switch that you're going to flick on that says, I'm in this environment that I'm, you know, you think about it. I did a, um, a video, it's on my YouTube channel, and I, it's the history of the U.S. marginal tax brackets. I go back to 1913. And there's a period of 21 years where the tax bracket, the top marginal bracket is 90%, 9-0. Nicholas first. <laughs> no, <laughs> the problem is you had to. Jack, Jack Nicholas, first year on the golf tour, I think it's 1964, he makes 100 grand. And they're interviewing him in the early 90s. How was Clintonomics going to affect you? And he says, not that bad. My first year on the tour, I made 100 and paid $90,000 in taxes. How bad is Clinton tax going to be? Right. You know, so, you know, it's like, well, if I'm planning and I'm deferring into a 90 percent bracket, which I don't think we get there, but the trend has been, let me take away every single deduction that you have and keep exposing more and more money to taxes. So like Biden goes from 37 to 39.6 in his tax law. But instead of getting to 39.6 at 600,000 and to get there at 400. Right. And then, oh, by the way, let's add a. a Medicare tax of 12 or 12 and a half percent. That's a 52% tax bracket above 400,000. So, you know, like I got 21 years where the uh, top bracket was over 90%. I better have some good planning along the way to get me out of that. If, you know, so conversely, if the tax, you know, if Trump wins and he says, you know, I think the thing he tweeted over the weekend or somebody did, he's going to have the greatest tax cuts ever. 
That might be a spot where, you know, 1031 exchange makes zero sense. Pay your tax and run. You know, 15 to 20% is one of the lowest brackets in the history of the world. It sometimes it just makes sense to pay tax. You know, people doing Roth conversions, they're paying the tax. I don't know if that makes sense. A lot like if I have $100,000 in my IRA and I've got 30,000 in cash and I do a Roth conversion, I got to give up Uncle Sam 30 grand. Now I've lost the, the compounding effect of that $30,000. What could I have done with that $30,000 in my plan to create more wealth? I mean, if 100 compounds at 8% versus 130,000 compounding at 8%, which one has more money? You don't need a calculator to figure uh, that out. Yeah, yeah, 130, right? <laughs> 130 is going to win, all right? So my, my point is we get the financial institutions are giving us like this stuff. The corporations are coming at us like the cars. Ooh, you know, you got a new, you know, a new tailpipe. You got to get this new car. And they've got us on the leases now, right? Every 36 months, you got to get a new car. <laughs> uh, you know, everything's changing. And, and, you know, and, and at the end, the long-term care companies are coming in and saying, we've got a wonderful home for mom and dad. You don't want to take care of them. It's going to, it's going to cost you $14,000 a month. It's going to take all your parents' wealth and you're not going to get any of it. You know, this is, nobody wants that to happen, but that's what's happening. And you, and you need to like arm yourself to really look at this and say, am I in control or is the financial institutions and the government and the corporations in control? If I don't understand the rules that they're in control, even when I understand the rules, I got to deal with these suckers every single day. And how do I deal with them? Right. If I don't know the rules, I, you know, I'm just lame duck. I'm going to get run over. So do you guys so. typically, when you're laying out that blueprint for your clients, uh, is that something that's like a, a consultation? And then from there, you guys do implementation or, you know, what can people expect? So the blueprinting process is kind of interesting. What we've, the way we do it is we do an introductory call. We spend about 30 minutes on the phone where we just get a, you know, we just get, get to know you. We ask you a bunch of questions. And it, for most people, it's, it's all about you. It's nothing to do with us, right? It's tell me about you and your family. Tell me about where your income is. Tell me about your taxes. Usually when I say taxes, people are like, I don't know. I don't know how much money I pay in taxes. You know, where's the money going into savings? What's your debt structured like? What's your lifestyle like? Where are your current assets? What are these future obligations that you have? You know, college, weddings, all that wonderful stuff, you know, goals. And then how's the wealth protected, right? Do you have an umbrella? You know, how many people on this podcast don't have an umbrella liability policy. They're now sitting here saying, what, what are you is, talking about? Yeah, what the heck that? is that? Right? So if I get sued and my property's in an LLC, I have some level of protection, but if I get sued personally, everything that I own is subject to my creditors, right? I was driving in my car and I ran over the, the person crossing the street. I didn't, but I'm just saying, like, no. if that happened, I'm <laughs> going to get sued, right? I'm going to get sued, right? Because I was texting while I was driving. I mean, that's like a common thing, right? So asset protection becomes like this super important part. So the conversation, that 30, 40 minute conversation with myself or one of my other advisors is, you're going to know at the end of that time frame whether this is going to be a good experience or it's not going to be right for you. And then what we do, depending upon who you are, Okay, if you're a business owner with complexity, 
it's going to be, there's a fee for that. And then if you're a corporate executive, there's a lesser fee because it's not as complex. If you're starting out, it's a really small fee to, to go through this blueprinting process. And what we do is we take everything, we organize it, we give you the blueprint, we have a scorecard that ranks you in uh, 38 different categories. And we walk you through, here's what, you know, here's where your issues are. We explain it to you. And you can walk out of that thing and go, that was a really great experience. I really love having this thing organized. And we can do the organization for you every single year. Most people then go, okay, I realize I need help. And in order to do this, there's strategy that needs to be put in play. We need to redo wills. We need to redo our property and casualty. That's mean getting an umbrella liability policy, right? I need to do life insurance. I need to do disability insurance. I need to open up a savings account. I need to do a 401k. I need to do you know, whatever it is. We're going to help you coordinate that. Some of those areas, we're going to you know, earn a commission or a finder's fee. Some of those, we're making direct referrals to great people that do great work. I mean, in the last you know, think about the amount of, I, I've recommended so many refinances in the last 60 to 90 days, I would be the top mortgage broker out there, but we're not, right? But it's, it makes good sense, right? And it's, so that blueprinting process is really designed to come in, work with us and not, you know, have an independent, you know, we're certified for financial planners. We have all the licensing. We have a registered investment advisory firm. We have series seven licenses. We're licensed in life and health. Uh, we have series 63s. I mean, we're, this is what we, I've been doing this for 30 years. This is what I do. Right. Um, and we're going to figure out what does Joe need to do in his plan and who does he need to get with to get this stuff done? Some of it I can help you with some of it. I can't. Um, and then that's really, to me, you start there and you know exactly, I mean, we spend, I don't mean to go off on a tangent, but that's what I do. But <laughs> most financial companies are pitching a product. The product is buy my investment XYZ. It's the miracle product that's going to save your life. All right. Buy gold, buy real estate, buy life insurance, buy an annuity. Don't buy an annuity. Annuities suck, right? You know, all of them are good stuff. You know, use proper, properly. The idea is that, you know, get a strategy, then figure out the financial products, right? It doesn't matter what bat or golf club that I'm going to use, right? Do I have a good coordinated swing? If I don't have a good coordinated swing, I could get the best clubs known to mankind. Like I took a tennis lesson on... Saturday morning, like my swing was all messed up. She worked with me for an hour to get my swing right. It didn't matter whether I had the best tennis racket or not. My swing was terrible. You know, work with coach for a while, get your swing right. Then you can go get a better product. But, you know, Tiger Woods can use like the worst club ever. My grandfather's 1952 <laughs> clubs and, and beat me at golf, right? It's because he has a coordinated swing. And that's really where we want to focus is on, you know, where's your swing? Like a lot of clients have come to us, all their money is in their business. Okay. They don't have any money to invest. Well, the sole purpose of owning a business is to get as much money out of it as you can personally. So let us help you get it out over the next 20 years and sell it. And when you sell it, now you got a great strategy because most people sell their businesses and they don't have enough money to maintain lifestyle because they didn't build enough wealth outside first. 
strategies, real estate, whatever it is, right? So it's a, it's a process that is designed to help you get that clear macro view of everything that you have, not just one part of your plan. You know, don't focus on one thing, focus on the big, on the big picture. Do you think a lot of people just get overwhelmed or intimidated by the whole process and just continue to pay taxes? Cause I feel like there's definitely a lack of planning out there amongst a lot of, you know, investors or people that are just higher, you know, income earners. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of it. There's a, there's a couple of things that are, that are happening. I think there's, you know, most people, when they come to us, they're like, I've been looking for this for like 30 years. I didn't know that it existed. Now that I wish I found it, you know, 20 years ago, I hear that <laughs> frequently, right? But there's also this like mindset that like, you know, I might be in the community and I haven't accumulated the amount of wealth that I want to accumulate. Now I'm going to go disclose it to this person that might know people in my community. I, I, I don't want to fess up to it. I don't want anybody to know. And I go along in my merry way and I'm saying, I don't care what you have. Like we don't have minimums in our firm. Like we work with people that have futures. Like if you have a future, I want to work with you. Right. And we have the structure set up the way we can do that. And it's, it's, there's also this sense of, and a lot of my wall street clients, you know, all of their friends believe that why would you need a financial advisor? You're, you're on wall street. It's all the stuff I don't know. It's all the stuff I don't know. It's the wills, it's trusts, it's all the other stuff. And they love, you know, it's like you want to, you need a, a person that's going to coordinate all the details for you. They're going to look at the tax return. They're going to look at, you know, are you optimizing your benefits? You know, if you, you know, go into your personal profit and loss statement, your personal one, and you just beat it up ugly. You just go through it and look at how many streaming services have you subscribed to in the last six months. You'll be dumbfounded by it, right? And how much TV have you not watched? But it's even like, think about your, your regular P&L for your business. You got your revenue and then you got cost of goods. Like what's going on in the cost of goods? Can you drop that cost of goods by two, 3%? It falls to your profit, right? And then all the layers of profit along the way, what can you do? To get, you know, go into each line and drop it by 2%, raise your income by 3%, you know, just go through and do that in your personal and in your businesses. At the end of the day, you'll have a 20 to 30% increase relatively quickly and you'll be ready for this downturn. I mean, how many new businesses are being started now too? I mean, this is a time to, you know, a lot of businesses are going to go out of business that leave a void for something that was there that's no longer there because the person was not capitalized right. I mean, you, there's going to be some great opportunities to where, become self-employed. Yeah. And where are you seeing those opportunities or at least your opinion as of today in 2020? I mean, everyone's kind of uh, initially in the beginning of, I guess, the COVID start, everyone kind of thought the real estate market would fall out and a lot of different things, but the Fed's been propping a lot up. So it's kind of a little gray or it's hard to see into what's actually going to happen maybe in the next couple of years. Yeah. You think about like, in the like I was talking about it earlier today, in the nine regions of the country, New York, Boston, Orlando, Vegas, Phoenix, California, Chicago, that might be nine. I don't know right now, but <laughs> those are under a lot of pressure, right? Because the unemployment rate is really comes is driven by the lack of tourism. 
Miami is another one, right? So the lack of tourism is putting a major dent in all of these areas. So you're going to have, if it wasn't for, you know, PPP money and, you know, extra unemployment, a lot of these areas would be in worse shape, right? The longer COVID continues and people are in lockdown, all those businesses are not getting the tourism that's coming. Eventually the tourists will return, but what's going to be left in those communities, like the suppliers of restaurants, right? A lot of them are in a lot of trouble. Okay, the corner store, the corner restaurant, the hotels, the the multifamily. Like I know people that have had, you know, big apartment buildings that were in, you know, like these city areas that their tenants aren't working. So they're having a higher incident of of vacancy and people not paying and the kids are moving out and they're going back home to live with mom and dad. And you're going from a, you know, 5% vacancy to a 25. If you don't have the right cash reserves, you're going to have some trouble. So within that becomes the opportunity, right? So the opportunity is in those areas, there's going to be businesses that are going to go out of business and somebody can step right in, unfortunately. Right. I hate to say it that way, but if you're well capitalized, you can step in. I mean, the gyms are going to be, you know, the gyms are having a lot of trouble. Um, you know, it's going to be interesting. I mean, I, I don't know about you. I don't work out well unless I'm at a gym. I don't do <laughs> I, well at the, at the house. I like to work out out uh, physical activity. I'm actually involved in like, you know, kiteboarding, roller hockey or outside. I don't like to be inside and I like to be out and about. But, uh, you know, so where do you, you kind of see a lot of opportunity coming down the road? And do, you, what do you, and do you think that's going to parlay also into real estate? Or do you think real estate's kind of seen its own bubble at the moment with uh, the increase in, you know, pricing? I think, you know, in the areas that people fled from and they came and they bought in areas like my area, right? Because I'm 30, 40 minutes south of Manhattan, an hour if you're driving 20 minutes on a ferry an hour on a train. Prices are up. They're overpaying. Houses are going 80, 90,000 over asking price. That never ends well. It never ends well. And a lot of white collar jobs could actually be at jeopardy if we don't get the right, you know, we don't get back to work, right? So how long can companies sustain themselves without having new sales? My biggest complaint for, or that I'm hearing from a lot of, a lot of people is, we can sustain our current business, but we're not getting new clients. We would go to a trade show and we would see those five people that we wanna see and we cultivate them over a couple of years. We're not seeing them. We can't even get in touch with them. They don't answer an email. They don't answer anything, right? Cause they're not out. But you know, that if you start to see a downturn or an increase in white collar unemployment because it's really not white collar, it's really blue collar, right? It's all the restaurants and all the tourism. I know of like commercial corporate travel, corporate travel companies have gone from hundreds of employees down to three. You know, these little tiny agencies that were great that would, you know, do it for five or six companies, they're, they're, they're not there, right? So, in that is creative destruction. There's a fantastic, you know, opportunity for people to step in and actually do it. But the longer people are out, I see the real estate market in the flea areas dropping and where people f went to way overvalued, which means 
if I lose my job and I, let's say I have a place in Manhattan, I have a place in New Jersey and I lose my job, which one am I going to sell? Whichever one goes first. Yeah. Whichever one goes first. (laughs) That's true. If you need money and you need money, right? My grandfather used to tell me when I'm buying it, it's the Taj Mahal. And when I'm selling it, it's an outhouse. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good, uh, never fall in love, right? Never fall in love. And you got to sell something quickly you always sell it for less than it's worth, right? So my point is, I think there's tremendous opportunity in the real estate markets coming. I don't think it's now. I think it's 12 to 18 months. Um, I think, you know, you're starting to see rent concessions, but people want two-year rental agreements. Who's going to sign a two-year apartment lease on a 25-year-old kid, you know, coming out of college? That's dangerous. They don't even know where they're working, right? Right. Whether they have a job. So I think there's a lot of opportunity within the businesses that feed normal business. I think there's opportunity within travel. I think there's opportunity within the commercial real estate. I think in homes, I think having ready money, having more money available, having cash, having liquidity, this is a great time to redo all your liquidity. Make sure you got enough cash to take advantage of the downturn when it happens. Cause it really hasn't happened. Correct. The way, the way we think it's going to happen. And if we get all the PPP in and we get more, you know, we get another round of stimulus, none of this could actually, it could, the can could be kicked down the road, but there's still going to be opportunities. Still going to be opportunities. So everyone needs to come in, look at their financial blueprint, see where they could prepare to have cash on, cash available for the opportunity that's going to come and uh, they'll be ready to make more money again. I have a, a book on Amazon. I just published it in May. It's called It's Your Wealth, Keep It. It's like $19. You can buy the book. Um, You can go to my website also. I have johnlsmallwood.com. And there's a whole bunch of resources. You can get a free chapter, et cetera. But, you know, the book is designed to give you big picture, to tell you how to, you know, to think strategically. It's a culmination of 30 years of work. Um, we have a series of podcasts. Um, you know, we, we have a whole stuff that we're trying to do. I have a guide on my, on my, um, webpage download. It's called the 19 sources of retirement income. Most people have three or four. I'd like to get you to 19. Okay. One of those is real estate, right? One, there's another 18 to get, you know, so, uh, so, we, you know, there's this opportunity to, this is the, I think this is the greatest opportunity for everybody to rethink their entire plan, to redo their budgets, to restore their, you know, get the debts in structure, get the liquidity right, you know, hunker down their asset allocations and get defensive, make sure that their protection is perfect and get into this, you know, thing and look for the opportunities. And when the opportunities are there, you know, most people didn't want to invest in March of 2009, nor did they want to invest in March of 2020. And you look at it by fund flows. That was, you know, what a time, what a time to invest. If you had, you know, Glenn Beck back in the day was talking about the hockey stick. I don't, you might be too young for that, but he was talking about the, the, the debt where the debt was like a hockey stick. And in 2009, it was just going to go up and the country was going to blow up and, you know, we're bankrupt as a country. That was wrong. 
right? You know, that was one of the best times. And typically when the world is ugly and things are bad, that's a great time to invest, you know, but the, the key is you got to have money. You got to have money. That was a lot of good info you provide today on the show. I appreciate that. It was, Thank you. It was good. And, you know, we always have a final question we leave off with. And what is the biggest thing you have implemented in your life that has increased your net worth? The concept of when I first started out, I bought a, a whole life insurance policy. I bought a lot more of them since, but I always, I use that thing three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine times to get myself out of trouble, but also to capitalize on things. It was having that available money set aside where it wasn't in my checkbook. And, you know, it was there to be used when I bought my, building. I borrowed money from it. I lent it to the entity. I get tax benefits for it. The building pays it back. Like there's so many things that you can be doing. It's that it, you know, that didn't technically make me money. It's the availability of that money and the, and the strategy of putting the money in there because you put it in there every single month and you forget about it, right? Like you just, it's this systematic savings, but that has set me up so I can do charitable remainder trusts. I can do all the things that I'm talking about if it makes sense in my financial plan in the future. So that foundation is like, I'm going to build a house. Do I build the foundation first or do I build the roof? I got build, it. You know, <laughs> build you know, the foundation so first, right? Build the foundation so that you can stem from all opportunity. If, if you don't have a solid foundation and we go into, you know, I might've bought the best rental property ever known to mankind and the market goes down and I lose my tenants and I don't have any liquidity and I lose it, foreclosure, that was bad. But if I have enough foundation, I, I can ride through most storms. So that's my single best thing that I ever did was build that foundation and that mindset of that. And having that in there, I mean, there's creditor proofing. If I became disabled, it would have been continued. Um, you know, so many things that are depending on where you are and what your state is. And it's not the magic bullet. It's part of the overall plan. It's just part of the plan. Like, you know, any good business has itself insured. Any house is insured. The most valuable person on this call is you and I, right? We run our financial strategies. We are the power of what's going on. And you're the most uninsured person in your entire financial plan. You know, your car has more insurance, your, your, <laughs> you know, all those things, right? For things that we hope are never going to happen. So if people, you know, obviously want assistance in their blueprint and building that foundation being the key number one thing, what is the best way for them to reach out to you or get a hold of you? Well, 800-797-1000. You can call the office. You can go to smallwoodassociates.com or johnlsmallwood.com. And there's tons of resources there on our website. There's a click here to schedule a free, no obligation call. And at the end of the call, if you're not happy with it and you don't like it, we're not going to bother you. Well, thanks, John, for coming on. I definitely gave me a lot of things to think about, especially, you know, uh, into different insurance topics in that foundation. I think, uh, you know, I'm more planning to do at this point, <laughs> but thanks for joining well, today. Joe, thank you. I really appreciate it. I love to have the, the um, conversation because the free forming of just figuring out where we're going, nobody knows where the heck 
we're going to go, <laughs> you know, like it's just have a good plan and go forward and take your tax benefits when you can and have that balance. So thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Enjoy. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave a rating and review. See you on our next episode. Thanks for listening to The Joe Roberts Show. Take these tips and insights that you can use to help grow your own personal wealth and share them with a friend that could also benefit. Don't miss a single episode or updates. Subscribe to our email list at joerobert.com. And as always, keep pushing yourself towards a more impactful life. The Joe Roberts Show.